We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast. We're back with another declassified episode. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And I think before we talk about the film we've got this week, um, for those who haven't joined us before for a declassified episode, what we do is for a new film that's coming out, we sit down and we give our instant thoughts on the film. There will be no spoilers until right at the very end, and we'll give you a heads up when those spoilers are coming your way. But, Cam, what are we talking about this week? We are talking about a movie from this year, Scott, 2022. What? We are going to, I know, right? We are going to talk about All the Old Knives, starring Chris Pine and Tandiway Newton. Yes, we've uh, partnered up with Amazon Prime. They have graciously sent us a screener for the film so we could both watch it and drop our review the day the film comes out on Amazon Prime worldwide. And not only have they done that, but they've also allowed us to sit down with the director, Mr. Yanis Metz, and the writer for the film, Mr. Olin Steinhauer, who actually wrote the book that this film is based off of and then adapted it into the screenplay for the film so i think before we get to our initial thoughts on the film let's sit down with them both our chat with olin and Yanis. cam roll the interview let's roll it joining us on the show we have Yanis and olin the masters behind this week's film all the old knives hello gents how are you doing good good uh, well well um, so we have a ton of questions, some from our listeners, some from ourselves. What I'll try and do is make it for both of you. And if it is a specific person question, I will say ahead of time. But otherwise, just assume it's for the both of you. Um, firstly, I would just love to know about the genesis of this project. Obviously, I know, Olin, you wrote the book, of course, and this is now being turned into the film. But how, yeah. did the, uh, how did it come about? How did you two connect and decide to make a movie out of it? But this was, um, I wrote the script six years ago or something like that for, uh, for our producers. Um, it's Nick, Nick Wexler, Steve Schwartz, and Paula May Schwartz. Um, and we, they tried for years to sort of get it off the ground. And there was uh, other director was attached for a while. We had different actors along the way. And for various reasons, it never quite came together and then Chris Pine uh, read the script and apparently loved it enough to stick with it. And, uh, and after that point, Janos came on and, and then things started to come together. Um, one of the things sort of bad for the world, but, but good for us is the COVID helped to clear away some schedules. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were able to get it made when we did, um, which, you know, it's it's so bad for everything, but but for us it worked out. Giannis knows a lot more of the behind the scenes stuff, mm -hmm. though. Yeah, well, I mean, for for my for my uh, part, um, you know, I, I read the script Olin had written, and I thought it was a beautiful 
idea of this, you know, these two ex-agents and ex-lovers that, you know, meet together after eight years of this terrible event that went wrong and, uh, and how this kind of, you know, the spy story, the whodunit and the love story intertwines throughout the, uh, the script was, was something that I just never read before. Um, I thought it was a really fresh idea and a fresh take on the genre. Um, and then I loved the characters. There was a, there was a, there was a, there was a depth to the characters and, and a drive to the characters and a tone to Olin's script that I really connected with. Um, and very quickly, I uh, um, was set up in a meeting with Chris to talk to him about it. And him and I just really found a, a common voice uh, about the story and, and kind of saw eye to eye. Um, and yes, yeah, as, as, Olin, as Olin mentioned, it was, you know, it kind of, this, the story lived a quiet life for a little while. And, and I was doing a, another project this, uh, series also for Amazon. Um, and when I freed up from that, we, we started diving in a little more. And then we had this really strange tango that Chris was attached to this huge, like globetrotting action movie. So his schedule wasn't going to free up. And uh, he said, well, we'll shoot it after. But, you know, you know, as everyone that's been in the business for a little while knows that, it will, you know, next year things look different, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so then COVID happened and this other movie was shut down because you... Um, you suddenly you couldn't travel anymore. And, and here we had a film that we could shoot for the most part in a studio and we could sort of, uh, you know, protect ourselves and, and, and shoot it in a bubble in a self-contained bubble. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, really just made the film happen. Yeah. I mean, this was, and I, and I, I kind of glossed over that. It's not that it's not that Yano suddenly appeared. Um, out of nowhere, um, the the producers uh, had said suggested his name, and I and I hadn't watched Borg versus McEnroe before, and that's mm -hmm. that was that was my entry into Giannis's work, um, and sort of seeing someone who, with this sort of focus on character, and sort of the nuance of relationships changing over time. Um, I was in favor of sending it to him uh, after seeing that. I knew he could do something, something really amazing uh, with this storyline. Which is something instrumental to grasp for telling this story, because that's yeah. one of the core themes is sort of changing over time and the duality of people. Um, I suppose before we get into perhaps the creation and the, the journey of making this film, is there any particular touchstones uh, you know films that you drew inspiration from both of you obviously other than when you wrote the book yeah and it's when you put the film together and obviously writing the screenplay other as well anything you sort of referenced or look to for inspiration you first no you start. should go first you uh, right, okay you, you, you're the start you're yeah. the start of the story yeah. so you're i'll point it out next time yeah, yeah, yeah sort of uh famously it uh um the the story itself the novel was inspired by the song of lunch um, mm -hmm. this wonderful uh, Alan Rickman and, uh, and Emma Thompson uh, film. And it was inspired, the, the whole thing takes place over lunch uh, between um, a, an ex-couple. 
And it's it's a beautiful movie. And I wondered, because I was already writing, you know, spy work is my main thing. I, but I was so entranced by it that I wondered, could I make a spy film like this over a table? Mm-hmm. And and yes and no was the answer. Um, and I actually had that idea. I forgot about it for a year. And then a year later, it all sort of came to me, like this story. And I was able to quickly write it. Um, and so certainly that's a, that's a situation where a film inspired a book, which then inspired a movie. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that's how, that's how it came about for me. And yeah, so about yourself. Well, um, I mean, I'd never done a spy movie before. And I, mm-hmm. I you know, I, I, I didn't come to this as a particular sort of fan of spy movies or the spy genre at all. But I think that some of the best spy movies out there are, you know, are, 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 are masterpieces, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, you know, they're, they're really kind of two strands of spy movies that I see. You know, you have the action packed sort of thriller, the, you know, movies on the one hand, and then you have the films that are based on this, you know, the trust, mistrust, uh, the paranoia and the office, the, the whodunit, this sort of, uh, you know, and, and the, the more sort of, you know, atmosphere condensed, uh, uh, dramatic films for me, which, which are, you know, so I look more to films like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and A Spy Who Came In From the Cold and The Third Man and, you know, classical. I mean, even Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a fairly recent film. It's based on a very sort of seminal classical work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, the, that was the world that I like to place this film in, uh, even sort of in, in the sort of feel of it and the tone of it, which was obviously all there in, in, in Olin's script. I mean, this was never an action movie. Uh, and um, I just thought there was so much space there for the, for the sort of this dense feeling of, of, of paranoia and this, the, 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 the sort of character arcs and the, all the intricacies between the characters. That, that's what I loved about it. It's funny. It's funny. I, you mentioned that uh, Tinker Tailor, um, because that's that book is one of the reasons why I write what I do. I, I adore this book. It's one I go back to, but also visually, the BBC uh, miniseries from when it was, I was 1979 or something like that with Alec Guinness playing yes. Smiley is is kind of forever one of one of the touchstones for me in terms of. TV or or film dealing with espionage. Um, it's a it's a beautifully understated um, miniseries, seven hours, I think. Um, yeah, that's always been one of my great loves. Well, I I think going down perhaps more the dramatic route certainly served this story. I don't think it needed a mm. shootout at the end between the two of them. I think that's a very different film in that restaurant. Certainly. Mm. Um, well, Olin, more of a question for you, sir. You know, you've you've wrote the book, and you know a lot of our listeners are actually big fans of the book, and they're very excited to see this adaptation. Mm. But just, what's the process like of adapting your own book into a screenplay? That's uh, that can be a challenge for many writers that we've encountered. Yeah, yeah, um, I've done that on a on a couple things so far. It's it's 
it's trying trying to keep track of the core of the story, um, knowing why you're t- you you also remind yourself in the process of why you wrote the story in the first place, um, but then realizing that it, well, frankly, everything has to be visual, but also there's more of a mechanics to the writing um, in that film structure is is much more specific than novel writing. Novel writing, you can you can wander around for a bit, uh, mm-hmm. and people have patience for that. Um, not so for film, and 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 if you can take a novel that's this big um, and just boil it down to its essence, uh, that's a great place to start. Uh, and that's sort of that's sort of what it, what I've tried to do um, with this and some other stuff. And you know, sometimes it works better than other times. This this time, things seem to work out pretty well. I, I would agree. Um, <laughs> now. Yeah. When it comes to uh, casting, it's always something interesting because we've had a, a lot of directors on the show in the past, a lot of screenwriters, and there mm-hmm. seems to be a, a disconnect on some movies and, a, and then a, a real connection on others. So I'm interested to know about the process you had with casting this film between the two of you. Was that a, a collaborative work or was it more Yanis? Were you leading that front? How did it come around? Well, Chris was already attached to the film, as, yeah. as we said, but, mm-hmm. but everything from them onwards was was my sort of mm. job as a as a director uh yeah. obviously you know for the bigger leading parts you, you do it in collaboration with with your producers because that's part of the financing package as well mm-hmm. um but um but all the all the cast ideas in there were you know mine you know mm-hmm. you have you collaborate with a casting agent that there's a wonderful casting agent in london gina j that uh, mm. i've worked with on 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 previous movies that i brought in a, onto this one, um, but you know, Tandy Way Newton was uh, Celia. Uh, you know, a couple of names that were being discussed as always. You know, you got to find your female lead. Who do we want it to be? And uh, I like the idea that she was. You know, she was a mature woman who's a mother, which is very important to the Celia character. And she can also be the younger, sort of uh, slightly more flamboyant and idealistic version of Celia. Um, and I remember when we talked about her, uh, I talked about her with Chris. He said uh, he liked the idea of Tandy, where he thought she was a very soulful actress. And I thought that really struck a chord with me because it was. Um, so important that Celia had a heart, you know, she could so easily have become a stereotype sort of femme fatale spy woman, you know, this kind of enigmatic, mysterious, beautiful uh, fantasy, right? And and I think Tandy and Newton brought real life and blood into the Celia character. Uh, and, and that's what I saw in her and what I liked. And then on the first conversation with her, she completely loved the story and, and came at it really from within Celia's POV. And I, I could feel that she under, she really understood the character and had taken the character on, you know, had taken the character on in, you know, from a first reading. And, um, and then, you know, obviously, the, you know, the two big supporting roles were, were Lawrence Fishburne, who plays the CIA, uh, the head of the office in Vienna, um, 
we went out to Lawrence because I really wanted someone who was a big authoritative voice in the room and like who could really command the room and be this kind of, you know, spy master general. And Lawrence, Lawrence was, you know, just terrific and, and such a wonderful big instrument to play and such an experienced actor and such a sort of big voice in the room. Um, it's, it's just amazing when, you know, when you have a great ensemble that this story gives you and to be able to fill those supporting roles with, with such strong characters as we have here, such strong actors, it really lifts the entire film because the ensemble becomes so interesting. Um, Jonathan Price was, you know, someone that I always dreamt about cast, casting for a movie. So when I when I read the character Bill, he was like, you know, he was all I could think about. Um, and we were fortunate enough to to, uh, to be able to get him on board. Um, you know, I loved him in in the Two Popes. I thought it was one of the best performances I've seen in many years. And he's, I, to me, is really one of the greats of his generation. I, I, there's a smaller role he also plays in, um, well, not a smaller role, but it's a big role, but a show that if any of you have seen the show, uh, the series Taboo, where he's across from Tom Hardy, and he plays this no, guy, no. Stuart Strange, who's like a nobleman, and he's really intense. Uh, no. So he's just got, he's really got a, you know, a fire in his game as well, Jonathan. Yeah. He's got such a big range. Well, and, I, John, and I, I consider myself lucky that he has this eye for mm -hmm. actors because I personally don't. In the, I don't. I don't enter. I don't write something with an idea of an actor. I mm -hmm. never do that. And people, friends, are frustrated with me because they want to get into the actor actor naming game. If I write something, they're like, "Oh well, who's the, who's going to be the lead? Who do you, who do you think?" And I'm like. I don't know, a really good actor, I suppose, because in my <laughs> mind, an actor can, a really good actor can, can do it. Um, so, no, I'm, but that's I'm, not entirely true, Olin, because I, I know we had not. conversations about actors, yeah. and you have a great intuition about who's <laughs> well, good and who's not. Well, Some of the names that you proposed were really, you know, were really good. I mean, and oh, I okay. think, but I do think that, it, you know, part of that conversation is also about, you know, why you and I connected on, you know, mm -hmm. the way you think and feel about your story is very closely connected to the way I think and feel about yeah. these people. So yeah. in many ways, I think, you know, we would see some of the same actors having mm -hmm. a conversation. And we did have some of those conversations at very early yeah. point where it wasn't That's... quite relevant. And I, I remember there was one particular actor that we thought about that who very quickly turned out not to be available. So he was... Mm off the table, someone that you worked yeah. on before and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I know James, yeah. I'm I'm curious to know now we're looking at the film as a piece now. What are some of your maybe a, a scene each, your favorite scene from the film? Oh my God. It's tougher for you, Olin. This yeah. is your yeah. book. Yeah. You go book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Giannis, you you answer first. Um, I, I don't know that I have a favorite scene because I think there's so many good scenes. I uh, <laughs> <sighs> I mean, I like, it's, it, you know, it, it's funny because it's a film that's a little difficult to talk about without revealing too mm -hmm. much, without mm -hmm. spoiling the plot. But there is a certain yeah. scene where there's a shift of POV, where suddenly, you, you know, you're coming mm -hmm. from 
Henry to Celia, and she's beginning to put him under the gun, which I think is really exciting mm-hmm. because it's a real tur- when the story starts to turn, and uh, I know it starts to, but there's an important moment in the story, and uh, and we managed to capture that also on camera. We have a camera that tracks around the characters, mm-hmm. and then it we ma- it stops right at the moment where she's confronting him. And uh, so we have, you have a shift in POV at the same time as the camera tracks around and physically shifts the POV from him to her. That's just, I mean, it's a very subtle thing, but it's very neat and, and, yeah. and, and quite powerful for the storytelling. So th- I, yeah. I think that was good. I, I think this, the sex scene is extraordinary. I thought they were very generous and, and, and courageous to do that. Uh, we worked also closely with an intimacy coordinator on set, which was a new experience for all of us and a very good experience. Um, and I think some of the interrogation scenes in the pub, how it intensifies between Henry and Bill mm-hmm. are quite exciting. But, you know... So many great things. We were on set when you have the full ensemble in the the big office scenes, and you have everyone mm-hmm. kind of, you know, you oh, coordinate that's big swooping oh, camera so moves, and 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 all the actors have great fun with yeah. each other because they they feed off each other, and and that's fun to direct. It's fun to direct a lot of people in in a yeah. room together. No, that's that's that was no, I because I'm going through it and I'm trying and really none none's my favorite. It's like your favorite child or something like that. But it's uh yes, that that in particular, the the office, the office introduction scene is just mm-hmm. just so it's this beautiful flow to it. And you're each each of these supporting characters sort of has that has you you get a sense of each of their different personalities in that in that moment and it's and they did a great job too um i was thinking maybe there's a scene without giving stuff away where a character unfortunately discovers a phone um and things change at that point um it's suddenly a big shift in understanding for one of the characters that's well, all I can say. No, I, 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 we're keeping it spoiler-free too. So thank you for joining yeah. in on that. Um, yeah. This this question is more for Janus here. When it comes to staging a hijacking on screen, mm. how do you deal with uh, capturing a horror without it being particularly exploitative? Mm. Which I, th- I think this film walks that line very well. Um, well, I I I, I can't. I I wouldn't know. All I can say is we try to make it, we try to make it as horrifying and, and real as it probably is, mm. you know, and, and try to make the hijackers feel like, you know, real hijackers. I remember we were, I asked my assistant when we were prepping over in London to give me, uh, uh, to find all the material that she could find of what hijackers have said on planes. Uh, you know, and really look into the the real hijackings and what how they went down. We did some research also with, you know, I, I didn't realize that, but apparently every most countries have like designated hijack airports or like you know where there's an area in 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 London. It's in it's in Gatwick. Oh. This is or maybe it was in Stansted. I can't remember now. But there's a particular plane where they take you know a particular area where they take hijack planes too because then they can 
they have it under, under control. They have maybe they've got a tunnel that can come up underneath the plane for special forces. And so we did a lot of research like that, which is also why I was like, oh, it's quite important in Olin's story that they make the plane come to a stop on the runway, you know, that they hijack it after the landing. I don't know if this was in your research too, Olin, or if, it, if you just happened to accidentally write it like this. I accidentally cool. wrote it. Yeah. It's super clever because what would happen in reality is if there's a hijacking in the air, they take the plane down and they take it to a designated hijacking area. So you wouldn't have all that drama that we have. It would be much more of a, a sort of secluded thing and they would have much better access to board the plane. So you, yeah. you, you wrote smart hijackers. Yeah. The hijackers that know why to do it the way they did it. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what exploitative, you know, means other than you don't want to see gratuitous violence, but you also want it to be violent enough to, to understand that this is really frightening. You obviously, you, we, 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 have, we have, you know, in the story, they've separated the children and the adults, mm. which, which, by, which is just so terrible, I think, yeah. as, a, as a concept, but also smart. You know, if you see it from the hijacker's point of view. And I remember it was something that Owen and I discussed on the script basis because there were, you know, people that were like, you know, it's too much, you know, they, 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 they're being too cynical. And Owen was like, but they have to be because it's smart from yeah. my perspective to do it like that. Yeah. And, and it plays into Celia's motherhood, you know, her, mm -hmm. he is a protector of her family and her children. And the fact that these children got hurt is what's really killing her. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that was important to the story. And then you suddenly you find yourself as a director working with, you know, 15 real life children and they have to be scared, you know, and you have to feel that they're scared and you have to make it feel real. So that's, that's, a, that's a, a line where as a director, you, you know, obviously you can't torture children. <laughs> to get a real emotion <laughs> but you can yeah. try to the best of your ability to get these children to look like they are scared and 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 i think we were, we were fortunate to have some really great kids on there particularly the ones that we cast uh to play celia's children um were just absolutely fabulously talented mm -hmm. and and there was one point where you know the little girl that plays uh celia's daughter on the plane she starts to cry uh because it all got a little too much and obviously you know perverted as we are we had that on camera and it works really beautifully she was very happy two seconds after and she got a big like bag of sweets and she thought it was all terrific but you know children particularly when you yeah. when you're casting really young children they, it's the line it's hard for them to distinguish between you know, the play, the fun of being in the mm -hmm. movie and then the real emotions that they sometimes have. And obviously, you know, you have to have the, your parents there. You have to have a very kind of careful and, and controlled process around that. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, she did actually start to cry at some point. I didn't realize. I didn't realize the camera was, was right on her. Yeah. And then we're like, OK, well, you know, yeah. the material is there. You know, that's. Um, yeah. 
sometimes well, no, that's, that's how films that get is, made you know? yeah, yeah yeah no i just thought that was a wildly convincing cry i was totally impressed yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. still am still am yeah. Yeah. great yeah. acting either way it's good yeah. um one one good question for olin before i maybe get to my quick fire round at the end before we wrap up today olin what what is the harder medium to write misdirect because this film has a couple of twists as good spy films tend to do mm-hmm. which which is harder is it to write or to do a screen a screen play for it um, I, I think probably it's harder. Well, I mean, you have so much flexibility in the novel form. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so that should be easier, but I think it's easier in the, um, in, in film scripts for me. It just ha- seems to have been easier, uh, when I think back, um, partly because you can limit perspective. You're expected to limit perspective in film because you're looking at a screen and hearing sound, you're not inside mm. people's heads. Um, and with novels, I feel I'm cheating if I hold back too much in a way. Uh, I'm sure there are ways to do that without cheating in novels. I mean, I know there are, because I've done it, but I feel like it, to me, it just seems a little harder in the way that I write um, to be holding stuff back. In, in the novel, for example, I solve that by having each chapter from a different perspective. So you're going, you're stuck with one person, then you're stuck with another, which allows it to unfold uh, in that way. But in the film, it took, yeah, yeah. No, in the film, somehow, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know which one's easier. No, I think no, what I'm you're saying makes myself. a lot of sense. I think yeah. what you're saying that you can really uh, keep, have cards up your sleeves in a, in a film mm-hmm. in a different way than I think people would accept from a from a novel. Right. Without without the reader feeling that your character is deeply untrustworthy. Yeah. Uh, and and some spy films trip up because they hold their cards too close to their chest, and then by right. the end, the, the the viewer is just confused, mm-hmm. which happens yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, before I get the old uh, you know, shepherd's crook reeling me off for the day, I have a couple of quick spy questions for you all, as we do talk about spy films every week here on Spy Hards. So, Olin first, then Yanis, what's your favourite spy film? Ah, um, maybe North by Northwest. <clears throat> if I have to throw out one, let's, let's try that one. That's my number one. Yanis, what about you? Um... I'm 100% sure I haven't seen as many as you guys, but I would say of the ones that I've seen, <laughs> yeah. A Spy Who Came In From The Cold is probably my, my favorite. Absolute classic. Choice. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about James Bond? Any James Bond fans here? Any particular James Bond film or James Bond actor you're particularly fond of? This, this last one was really good. Um, mm. I forget the name. Of it. I, I thought it was excellent. Um, no time to but die. Class, but classically, my favorite is uh, from Russia with Love. That's, That's also my favorite Bond. We're uh, yeah. simpatico here. I like this. Yeah, uh, we this, are. This stuff. Um, what about you, Yanis? Favorite Bonds? Um, favorite Bonds. I think Daniel Craig. I love this sort of the 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 hu- the sort of the flawed Bond that mm-hmm. he portrays is, is stands out to me. And I, I did think the last Bond movie was great. Um, I mean, yes, it, James Bond is such a cultural phenomenon. I like to think about him in that sense. You know, he means something. He's a reference point for, uh, you know, in the popular culture. And, and I like the fact that he's now being challenged as a masculine figure um, mm. in this latest movie. 
and I'm just very curious to see what the future brings for, for James Bond. Yeah. That is the uh, the question right now. What happens next? But um, before I let you both go, Olin, you, you will probably know this and you can't answer your own books. So favorite spy book? Oh, I Tinker Taylor, ah. Soldier Spy. I mean, it's, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an obvious one, but it's, it's one of the few that I've reread multiple times mm-hmm. um, and it keeps giving more every time I read it. I think the book is better than the, any translation I've ever seen personally. Um, yeah. Tinker Taylor. Right. But you've, but you've seen the BBC one. I've seen the BBC uh, one and the, yeah. um, the two, the 2010 version as well. Right. Yeah. No, but you can't, I mean, there's, there's no way to translate all of that meat onto the screen. It's impossible. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a cultural touchstone. It's, it's describing empire, you know, and the end of it, you know, it's, it's amazing. But when you try to touch a Lacare or a Dayton, it's so hard to get everything on that page yeah. to the screen. And I think it, what you've done with this film is, is a triumph in that sense. I think you've translated it very well. And thank you for that. Yanis, I can't let you go without asking you your favorite spy book. <laughs> can I say all the old knives? <laughs> you, uh, you can. You officially yeah. can. <laughs> yeah, I'll say all the old knives. Okay, Probably because I guy. haven't read that many spy books. But, yeah, I, was, but I thought it was a your, great book. Your check's in the mail, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> well gentlemen i want to thank you both for spending the time with us today to talk about all the old knives coming out on amazon prime very soon and uh what a triumph it is thank you for your time gents thank yeah you. thanks scott we interrupt this program to bring you a special report agents we have some breaking intel that's right independent podcasting is not cheap equipment hosting research these all add up and we don't have vesper lind to bail us out and also We don't want to run ads on the show. Leave the shopping to Harry Palmer, we say. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hards Patreon. So we're here to ask for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to meet IMF standards and give you an even better listening experience. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, there you go, folks. That was Yanis and Olin. Again, we want to thank Amazon Prime for hooking us up with the interview there. It was great to talk to both of them and sort of chart the course of how this film was made. I mean, just locking down Chris Pine seems to be a feat that was achieved only thanks to uh, the unfortunate COVID-19 pandemic uh, and uh, all of his sort of contractual obligations being passed along. So he had a brief window and that allowed them to shoot it. They actually shot it, you know, towards the end of lockdown in 2020 in London and then moved the rest of the production to LA. Um, but yeah, just, just chanting about how, you know, Olin about how he adapted his book into a film. I mean, we usually see, we've had some adaptations on the show before that have been quite interesting, but I don't think we've ever seen the, the author turn it into a screenplay for the film. Not to the best of my memory, no. Um, no, so this is definitely, yeah, new territory for us. But Olin actually wrote um, for the TV show The Berlin Station. He actually created that show, which is a spy TV show. So it's not his first foray into screenwriting, but uh, I think it's probably his first foray into adapting his own book into a film. So, um, you know, 
I mean, we could talk about the interview, but really, I want to hear from you, Cam. What did you think of all the old knives? I think this movie is trying to do two things. And on one side, it's very much a relationship drama, um, a very intimate relationship drama. And on the other half is more of a procedural um, set in a world where a terrorist event has happened and um, the CIA is investigating a plane hijacking. And what I found was like, I am interested in these two things. And yet I found kind of the balance of the two took away from each side. So I felt like each one, I walked out of the movie, I guess, not having a great sense of either side of what it was trying to do and didn't feel as fleshed out as it could have been. I think it's interesting because I actually looked up the length of the book. This feels very much like a one act play almost. Um, and the book I saw was, I think like 350 pages or something like that. And yet I would have sworn from watching the movie that maybe it was a short story or something because it did feel, you know, the movie's only an hour and 40 minutes, but it felt quite thin by the end. And I'm, I'm perplexed almost just given that the book seems to actually be, you know, reasonably extensive. Well, it's interesting you, you mentioned that sort of disconnect and perhaps the, the sort of pacing issue and the length issue because, you know, it's uh, it's it's a 350-page book, which for me is is quite long. I don't really read many books. But, you know, I spoke with Olin, the screenwriter for the film, about adapting the book. And one of the things the book does is have the POV of both the Celia and Henry characters, you know, Chris Pine and Tandy Wade Newton's characters. Um, per chapter so it gives the book time to build the tension towards the sort of climax at the end and just to say folks i did say at the beginning we won't have any spoilers until right at the end so don't worry we're not going to spoil anything for you but yeah and so i think one of the one of the issues he had in adapting it is trying to keep the tension but also pace it out like a film right and it sounds like you've had a little trouble with that I really did, and this movie almost felt in some ways to me like it landed in this no-man's land between like a TV episode and a film. Like, I, watching the movie, couldn't quite picture this movie being like a theatrical movie, and you have like the presence of some great stars, you know, Chris Pine and Tandy Way Newton, obviously, as you said, you have these two dueling, you know, across a table from each other the entire duration of the film almost. That's why it felt like a one-act play to me. But you also do have some, you know, Jonathan Price, um, Lawrence Fishburne feature into the movie, but in somewhat underwritten roles. So it often felt like there was areas to expand. And that's really interesting, as you said, about various chapters being written from different characters' points of view, because you don't get that in the movie. You really just get Chris Pine's point of view. And... It's a very ambiguous point of view, and I wonder if there was a little bit of a emotional disconnect for me from the movie, whereas in the book I would feel much more plugged into what each participant is going through moment to moment. But I think that's a bit of a tough line to walk because not only is this film playing in different times, you've got the incident that triggers this film, which is a terrorist attack on a plane, and then the investigation 10 years later. And you're jumping between those times as you uncover the story, which is a, a, a good concept. But if you're also going to add in changing POV between different leads, I think that could overcomplicate the film even more. And I think that probably wouldn't have served it either. Well, did it work for you overall? Um, it, it's an interesting question because I think there's bits of the film I liked, and I think it's probably the same as you. Uh, bits I liked, bits I, I wasn't too fond of, I would say. Um, I, I think I liked the concept 
I like the idea and the story behind it. I'm maybe just not a fan of the delivery. Right. Which I think is maybe a, a condensed version of what you said. Yeah, and I think like this movie really at the heart of it is more of a relationship drama than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and it was a very like intimate relationship as depicted on screen. Like these two actors are, you know, engaging in some fairly um, you know, sensuous love scenes in this movie. And it's not the sort of thing you see in a lot of Hollywood films. They tend to pull back on um sexuality in movies. So I thought on that uh, you know, side of it, it was actually quite admirable that they were going there, and it made these two characters feel very connected. So that when you revisit them later, you get a sense of you know what they had before. I would have liked a little more of just what the, their their life was like before outside of the bedroom, but nonetheless, you felt the connection in their love scenes, and you could carry that over to the drama. But it was the sort of relationship where it's like I felt like I just needed a little more of the relationship or a little more of the procedural, or a little more of the espionage, a little more of something. It just felt like admirable elements that weren't congealing into something that was really grabbing me. Lots of good concepts and just a delivery issue. Yeah, that's why I said it. It felt like almost like, to me, in No Man's Land between a TV episode and a movie. Like, I could totally see an hour-long TV episode that would work with this structure. Well, I think that's one of the things I had in my notes is, and I don't want to sit here just lamping on the film. There's some things I liked, which I want to get to in a second. But I, I just, for me, I, it, it's, it runs at almost two hours. Yeah. And a lot of it is sat at a table. Now, this isn't my dinner with Andre. <laughs> Great movie, by the way. Sure. Um, and I think the static nature of that story demands that the film be shorter. Because it has all these explosive, like explosive bits to it, and some you know high octane acting sequences, and some other bits that happen, um, which we won't spoil. But ultimately, it's it always comes back. Every scene almost always comes back to the table, and it's like an interrogation over dinner. But I think if this film came in at ninety minutes, and everything was maybe more made more concise, or they, maybe they picked an element and stuck with it, be it the the spy or be it the relationship it would have fit into that 90-minute mold a lot better and felt perhaps a bit more concise. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, the two actors have genuine chemistry. Mm -hmm. They're very playful. As I said, like, there's, you know, a lot of eroticism to their love scenes. Like, they're they're doing the heavy lifting, like these two actors who are, you know, fabulous. We've seen them in many other roles. Um, But it doesn't feel like you're getting quite enough in terms of, like, insight into who they are as people. And a lot of that is because they're cloaking, you know, characters and ambiguity because the whole gist of the movie is there is a mole somewhere within the CIA and it's Chris Pine going from character to character trying to, you know, determine who it is. And ultimately, most of the movie centers around the relationship with Tandy U.A. Newton's character because that's the central relationship. And so you don't know who each character really is at this table, which is a bit of an ask when you're spending that much time with them there. And I think what the movie's trying to do is sort of have this unpeeling of an onion, you know? You're supposed to just kind of watch the pieces fall away, and you're like, okay, what's going to be at the center of this? How is this going to kind of break down? But I didn't feel like there was escalation to this in a way that was really pulling me in. It felt a little more static than I was perhaps expecting once I was aware of what the setup was. Well, yeah, from from like a narrative sense, you, you need to 
build a relationship with your audience and your main characters to when you get to that climax at the end for it to pay off there needs to be something there and if it's a lot of this film is is spent sort of kind of like a podcast in a way just sort of jabbing back and forth to get to your point but i don't think i mean first of all this podcast won't run two hours and and second of all we're not trying to sell a story here we're just talking about a delivery of a story and i think that's probably where i had a little bit of problem was i didn't i didn't connect too much with them but like you talk about the actual connection between the two leads i mean they had a intimacy counselor come in to help with the love making scene and also just like the, the the connection between two of them they actually put a lot of time and, and yana spoke a lot about that in the interview trying to get that right and i think you feel the connection between the two actors i think that works i think just for me like my top line thoughts is it probably runs a bit too long on what it's offering if it added more um information about maybe Lawrence fishburne's character or jonathan price's character or or a fifth character perhaps and it gave its its you know a supporting actors more room to play in maybe it would have felt like it was fleshed out enough for two hours but at the two hour mark i felt like it was a lot of just establishing shots and just shots of very good looking people drinking wine (laughs) and it's a really curious problem to run into and one i don't think we have in anything else we've covered i don't know that i have a good comparison point for it where the solution seemed to be right there and that like Jonathan Price's character, for example, we know next to nothing. He's sort of a mentor to the 10 day way Newton's character. Um, and he has a wife that's sort of domineering, I guess, like several references are made to this, but you don't really have any sense of who this character is other than very vague details. And kind of make that office world feel more lived in, you know? I don't know anything really about the Lawrence Fishburne character. And, you know, even when I'm watching like a procedural like Zero Dark Thirty, a movie that I think does that sort of material like top rate, I don't know that you can do it better than what Zero Dark Thirty did. And I don't hold this movie up to, you know, you failed to do what Zero Dark Thirty did. How dare you? But I think like that movie managed to really reveal a lot of character through the investigation scenes, and I just did not get that here. Not to the same degree, at least. Not to a, a degree that I found as compelling as I would have liked to. Well, like, you look at the one of the opening shots in the film. is like an establishing shot in the Oslo station, basically. And the, and the camera goes around the office. It's almost like it's trying to do, like, a one-take shot as it goes around. It introduces your characters as Tandy Way sort of talks about them and sort of introduces it to the viewer. And in kind of like a Tommy Shlami style shot from like the west wing it feels like it's taken straight out of that but then you have 45 minutes to hang out with these characters and get to know them yeah you know, or an hour and a half of a two with like a pilot episode for instance and and this didn't give any more time to those characters like lawrence lawrence fishburne i think gets a handful of lines in the film and i think one of the last scenes in the film and there's no there's no connection to him i don't I couldn't care. There's like a scene where everyone's in an office together and it's meant to kind of feel like, yeah, this is great. But I honestly, I couldn't tell you anything about Jonathan Price apart from the fact that his wife is a bit of a nag. No, and that's the thing. Like, it felt like that was a character of the cast you would flesh out. Like, he would be the first one you'd be looking at of the group that weren't, you know, given a little more to do. But there was like a couple people in the office as well. It's like, oh, why not give them a little more of a, you know, a quirk or a sense of a personality 
curious. And like the movie's very uh, monolithic in its tone. It is kind of a doom and gloom kind of movie. Like there's not a lot of uh, high comedic points or anything like that. And it has this kind of rumbling Sicario like score underneath it all. And you're like, okay, like I, I get the sense, you know, like this is dealing with very serious matter in terms of the terrorism subplot and what people from the CIA would go through in an incident like this and sort of how this relationship that we're seeing could be doomed ultimately by the end. Um, and that is, I think, a tough ask when it just feels like you're not shifting it up too much. Like it feels like just that one tone of doom throughout and it's not paced, I think, quickly enough, as you said, to kind of make the experience feel like it doesn't get kind of burdensome. Well, you, you don't feel like the plot's getting anywhere. They spend... Yeah. It's two hours trying to figure out who is the spy. And that's the thing. It doesn't feel like it's escalating, right? And I think that was where I kind of ran into problems. Well, like, I, one note I had, and this is actually some of one of the things I liked with the film, is, you know, it's set up this in this restaurant, and they're eating dinner and having dessert, drinking wine, as and the evening's rolling on, and it goes from, like, daytime to you know dusk and like the background's great and it, it, it's obviously shot in a lovely restaurant or, or a lovely green screen hmm. in california and then it gets to like nighttime but as the day is getting darker so is the tone of the conversation i thought that was actually a really nice touch from uh Yanis there, the, the director um and something i complimented him on in the interview but to sort of counter that i think it looked it like it looked great but like it I didn't feel anything whilst watching it. And it it's not like, you know, we've spent two years now almost looking at spy films, digging into all kinds of spy films from comedies to action to everything in between. And it needs to have something to hang its hat on. Now, if this is going to be a serious spy drama a la, a la Carre ad adaptation or something like that, the the thriller aspect, the, the suspense, the tension needs to be there. And I don't think this is. Now, I can only assume, I haven't read the book, and neither have you, Cam, that that is in the book, because I know this book is beloved by a lot of spy fans. I mean, you know, one of the, uh, Jeff Quest, pr a previous guest on the show, um, sent in a couple of questions that I used in the interview, and, and thank you, Jeff, for those questions. And, you know, he's a big fan of the book, and he really recommends it. So I can only assume that there's more there, and the book gives it more time for that story to breathe and the characters to, to have more of a life to them and to grow that tension as it goes along. But I think translating a book is no easy feat. We've encountered this a few times. I look at um, The Little Drummer Girl. Yeah. That is a rough, rough translation of that book. But you watch the BBC miniseries that's six hours long, nails it, completely nails it. Now, and I'm asking for it to be shorter. So I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it needs to be longer to get the full breadth of that story. But I don't feel there was enough here with this to go past 90 minutes. And I think when you are giving a real peek inside people's minds in the book, in a back and forth, that adds a lot that just isn't there in the movie. And I, I want to say, though, I agree with you. Like The locations look great. I think they make good use of them. And it never felt like the location was getting old sitting there like i appreciated that and there's some pretty solid food porn in this movie as well um great shots of wine and uh you know gourmet food so and chris think, pine and chris pine of course yeah um you know you've got beautiful people in this movie beautiful people 
I mean, Jonathan Price, people. I mean, come on. We saw him in Jumping Jack Flash. Heartthrob. He is Jumping Jack Flash himself. He is the man. And, you know, we're not beautiful people. So we know beautiful people when we see it. And, yeah, I, I really liked um, the, the ability for the film to jump back and forth in time between when the event happened and the conversation between the two uh, former agents, I suppose, or one still an agent. And it doesn't disorientate the viewer. Because time jump films and TV shows have a tendency to frustrate people because you can't keep track of where they are. But there's definitely a visual style between the two. And I mean, Chris Pine's hair changes back and forth so that you can track it that way. But yeah, I think they do a good job in keeping that on track as well. They do. And I also thought they did a pretty good job with the um, hijacking sequence, which has a pretty high level of horror to it, but it doesn't feel like crass or exploitive when you're watching it. And um, that's always a tough line to walk when you are dealing with um, incidents that reflect kind of modern terrorism. Like they can feel pretty gross in a, in a movie done wrong. And I thought this one was actually quite effective. Yeah. And I asked um, Yanis about putting that together. And yeah, you know, he said, yeah, for him it was more just about capturing that horror and you know there's a scene where uh, one of Tandyway's kids starts crying and that is a real they they did just start crying because they were scared from sort of the, the sort of panic of being in that situation and they captured that on screen and you know, they they were all good sports about it and it was all okay in the end everything was made fine but that was a raw moment captured on screen and i think that translates in that scene there's a real sense of claustrophobia and panic in that fuselage and you you do you get what those passengers are feeling and i think that's effectively delivered yeah i think that was a smart device to use because otherwise you're watching kind of faceless extras in a plane and by having tendua newton's character in there it helps you understand the emotions of that sequence through a character which otherwise we wouldn't have no um other than that it was quite cool to hear Chris Pine asked for a vodka martini. Yes, that had to be a James Bond connection, right? It has to be. be. I mean, I asked them both at the end of the interview what their favorite Bond films were. Yanis said he is a big fan of No Time to Die. Olin said my personal favorite from Russia with Love. So there's Bond fans amongst us. So I, I appreciated that. I do look forward to the day where someone's just like, never say never again. And I will be their <laughs> biggest fan from that day. <laughs> I, I defend that film to the ends of the earth. Cam, the sun is starting to set. Uh, we better get drinking our wine. We're going to talk about spoilers. Uh, skip ahead if you don't want any spoilers. There'll be a time code in the show notes just below you where you can skip to to avoid the spoiler section. Spoiler time. Cam, big old twist at the end of this film. Did it work for you? Not really, um, because there was so few options. Um, I think that's why for me it was like, yeah, Kind of saw that one coming because, really, it comes down to, uh, you know, Tendiway Newton or Chris Pine. You know it's not Jonathan Price because we don't know anything about this guy. So it's clearly one of them. Um, I have to believe in the book that the Bill Compton character is, is written more and given more time to potentially be one of, or to potentially be the, the double agent. I would hope so. It wouldn't. Otherwise, why would you have the character? They, you think of like a Poirot sort of detective story, 
you know, Death on the Nile or Murder on the Orient Express. There's ten people who could have done it. It's a, it's a who done it situation, and you spend the, the entire film figuring it out. This film only had two people, and as you're getting towards the end of the film, you start to realize it's probably not going to be that one. So it leads to the only other one left. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think the movie entirely hinges on a twist, which I think was smart. So you're really just playing out the end of this relationship with Chris Pine being poisoned and, you know, sort of a little bit of the tension of will Tandy Way Newton be assassinated um, before she, you know, makes it home from the restaurant. So in terms of kind of delivering an emotional kind of catharsis to that relationship, um, I thought it was decent. It didn't, um, it didn't bump on me in a, in a negative way. I was like, okay, that's a fine resolution, but I just felt like it was like so much of the movie, just kind of pulling its punches. Like it didn't feel like it was hitting the right emotional chords. Like I wanted to be more kind of, I guess, emotionally devastated by what I was seeing versus kind of more passive. It's almost as if there wasn't enough added in for it to connect for you to feel bad. Yeah. Basically. Because like, when you see that the only reason why and you know, Chris Pine is, is the double agent, um, the only reason you, when you find out why is because they actually technically have Tandy Way Newton's character hostage and he has to give that information to save her life because he loves her. It's a love story, basically. But he can't tell her that because by this point he's already been poisoned. And the only thing he can maybe do is stop her from being assassinated by the by the assassin that he set up to kill her in the first place. And so there's meant to be this kind of like, as he's slowly breathing his last few breaths, can he, is he going to say yes or no to, to the execution order? And in the end, he, he doesn't, she doesn't get killed. But I don't know if you have enough groundwork for it to be tense. Like you just kind of watch it and go, yeah, like you said, yes, that's a that's a fine resolution. Yeah, like I didn't feel cheated. I didn't think it was a bad ending or anything. It just felt like it was no. not quite delivering as strongly as it should. And no, even if we'd like maybe spent some more time with like Tandy Way Newton's family and children or something, like to have a sense of what is at stake here versus kind of just the blank husband that we know nothing about. And the whole time I felt kind of bad for, <laughs> or maybe just some of the, the, the lovely life she was having. She says she loved working in the Oslo station, maybe just a bit more time of her and Chris Pine working in the station. Maybe they work a case before this terrorist incident happens and you see them work a case together and it's all nice. And that's something you could have done to build it up. But you know, I'm not a screenwriter. Um, so the, the twist didn't work for you then. It's fine. Like, it's not a twist to me. Like, I think the movie puts all of its chips on. Like, I, I mm. think you, you you know, you see some movies where they clearly were like, we have the twist and nothing else. And if it doesn't work, the whole thing collapses. I don't think that's the case here. Um, sure. I think it, uh, it, it resolves itself in a way that makes sense. Um, it's just like, I don't know that I felt when I got to the ending that I understood why i had experienced the preceding hour and a half it was like okay fair enough yeah i i, I felt that was my feeling towards it too i mean it, I, it didn't not work for me i think the the relationship between the two of them is a lot of fun at times and it, the chemistry is clearly there between your two leads and so seeing them act off of each other is is lovely at moments but i i don't feel it, it earned the emotional climax it was trying to have 
And so you're just left going, okay. Yeah, it's interesting because I read that Neil Berger was originally going to direct this movie. He did the movie Limitless, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, Kate Winslet and Idris Elba were circling it. And ended up instead going off and doing that drama, The Mountain Between Us, which I don't think anyone saw. It was kind of one of those Oscar hopeful movies that um, just really didn't go anywhere. But it was interesting afterwards to kind of contemplate what that movie might have been. And I'm not saying it would be Mm. better. Just I think it would have been a little different because Neil Berger is, um, I think, just a different type of director. Sure. I I I mean, Yanis himself says in the interview, this is the first time he's ever touched a spy movie. He's not the biggest, uh, he hasn't got the widest spy experience, particularly. Um, I, I'm not placing any blame on anyone for this one, particularly. I think it it's a perfectly fine film to watch. The thing is, if someone asks me the question, if I've got Amazon Prime, do I watch this film and I like spy stories? I'd probably say give it a watch. If you happen to like the lead actors, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's going to waste your time. It's it's not something I would tell you to actively avoid. Personally, I didn't get much out of it. I didn't feel like it enriched my uh, you know life particularly. It was it was a fine film and it was a serviceable film. Yeah, like we talked about the Courier um, a little ways back, which like I thought the Courier was a much stronger um, spy vehicle yeah. for Amazon. Um, but I would say this was better than like without remorse. It's the sort of thing like if you are a hardcore spy fan and you like those stories, you know, espionage dramas, give this one a shot. Mm-hmm. You know, you may like it, you may not, but it's at least offering something a little different than we're used to, which is like such a strong focus on a relationship drama at the heart of an espionage story. You don't see that as much. So I think it's kind of interesting in that regard, but didn't fully work for me as much as I would have liked. Yeah, I feel like at times it's got the heart of like an independent film. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's it's interestingly shot. It's a different type of pace for the genre it's in. It's trying to do something a bit different. Uh, I just I'm not too sure on its delivery. I think the delivery is where it fell down for me. But you know, as Cam and I said, if you're if you've got Amazon Prime and you like a good a good serious spy story. You like your Le Carre adaptations. You like your Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Your man who came in from the cold. This might just be for you. I'd I'd say give it a give it a watch. And I would say if you're just like a mainstream movie goer, I don't know that it will. I'll be really interested to see how just your average movie goer feels about this one who tu- uh, tunes into it because of the two stars. They go, oh, I love those sure. Chris Pine, Tandy Way Newton. Of course, I'm going to watch this. And I'll be very curious. How many are just put off by the overall kind of downbeat tone and single location? Much like this review. (laughs) Accurate. Well, you know, again, we do want to thank Amazon Prime for giving us a primer for this film to watch it ahead of time and to give you all a review on the day of release. We want to thank, of course, Yanis Metz and Olin Steinhauer for, for sitting down with me earlier on today and chatting all about the film. This was my first solo interview. I hope it was okay. Cam stepped up to the mark with Bruce Glover. This was my uh, return volley. We'll see what happens next. Yeah, it's tough when you're dealing with press tours because you have very few time options. So um, props to you, Scott, for stepping in because uh, I couldn't get out of work. No, no, it's all good. Um 
Well, that was our declassified review for all the old knives out now on Amazon Prime. Check it out if you like what you heard on this episode. But Cam, what are we talking about next week? Yes, we are tackling another Hitchcock film, the 1956 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. And we have a very exciting guest on that episode. Yes, we do. I will spoil it now for people that are tuning into our second episode of the week. We are joined for the second time by Mr. James Bond on YouTube, Calvin Dyson himself. He requested a Hitchcock film, and boy, have we delivered. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956, the Alfred Hitchcock classic. We'll find out. And join us next week. Do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week i did it for you because i love you exploring the works of john le carre each episode of the le carre cast looks at a specific novel or an unexplored aspect of his life and work Join us as we take a deep dive into the world of espionage John Le Carre has revealed. Search for Le Carre Cast wherever you listen to podcasts or at lecarecast.com. <laughs>